0: Ιούνιος 2019. Οι διάλογοι φιλοξενούν το Πανεπιστήμιο Johns Hopkins και την δεύτερη ημερίδα του SNF Agora Institute με τίτλο «Talking and Listening Across Divides». Σε μια πολύ ενδιαφέρουσα συζήτηση, η οποία πραγματοποιήθηκε στα αγγλικά, Επιφανείς επιστήμονες και ερευνητές από διαφορετικούς χώρους και επιστημονικά πεδία αναδεικνύουν όλα όσα μπορούν να μας διδάξουν, η εμπειρία και οι επιστήμες, καθώς και τις προϋποθέσεις που επιτρέπουν τον παραγωγικό και δημοκρατικό διάλογο και τη συμμετοχή στα κοινά. Θα ήθελα να του μια διαφορετική As the case is every month, the dialogues, as you know, aim to generate discussions on a variety of topics and in different spaces that promote open engagement and free speech. The need to have a dialogue has never been as necessary as today, given that our times is defined by extreme polarization gaining ground. The simple value of I listen and talk. I respect the opposite side and I come up with arguments, seems to be threatened. Among other speakers, Andreas Drakopoulos, the co-president of Stavros Niarchos Foundation, who from the beginning believed in the dynamic nature of the dialogues and what it means to share your views in public, participated in our discussions many times, intending not only to share his thoughts with the other panelists, but also answer questions posed by the ones present. The target of this initiative is to promote a conversation and not individual hang-ups. To listen, to add, to agree or disagree, to argue and not simply to answer, but above all, to reflect on serious matters that concern all of us. To empower our critical thinking and not take a neutral and uninvolved stance for what is happening around us. With polarization reaching new levels and the critical importance of reintroducing civil discourse and engagement into the public domain, in 2018, the SNF established through a landmark grant, the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. The SNF Agora Institute is an academic and public forum which supports civic engagement and civil discourse that is the cornerstone of healthy democracies. The SNF committed $150 million to establish and fully endow the Institute, drawing inspiration from the ancient Athena Agora, the central space of the city that grew to become a hub of conversation and debate, and the heart of the city state's democratic governance. So, today, in Dialogues, we will attend the SNF Agora Institute workshop entitled Talking and Listening Across Divides Scholars and Professionals from various fields will participate in this workshop. Now, I would like to invite here on the stage, Elizabeth Smythe, Executive Director of the SNF-Agora Institute. We are looking forward for today's discussion. Thank you, Anna Kinthia. Um,
1: and thank you to all of you for being here, and welcome to the second annual SNF-Agora Institute workshop. We are so pleased to be here. Um, and I wanna take a quick moment to say thank you to the entire team at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation who has made not only this day, but this whole week of amazing events possible. Um, these are the people behind the scenes who do incredible amounts of work um, that none of us know about, but that makes this all come to life. So Asimenea and Elenia, Lania, Nancy, Stelios, Vasili, Um, The whole team, we appreciate so much all that you've done to make this come to life. Um, What a gift to all of us to be able to communicate, listen and learn and celebrate in this incredible environment Um, and in this great city whose ancient Agora inspired our very founding. But to kick things off, I'd like to welcome to the stage our inaugural director for the SNF Agora Institute, Hari Han, a Harvard and Stanford educated scholar, who has dedicated her career to understanding political and civic participation and engagement, and who strives to find a way to make her academic work relevant in the world beyond campus, one of the critical pillars of the Agora Institute. Hari truly embodies the values that our Institute aspires to promote, and so I'm pleased to welcome Hari Han to the stage to kick off this program to tell you a little more about her research, and to share her vision for the work ahead for the SNF Agora
2: Institute. Thank you. Good morning. Come on, friends, I think we can do better than that. Good morning. Um, It's wonderful to be here with you all this morning. Um, I want to start just by thanking Andreas and the whole team at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation for making today possible and really the entire week of activities that we've all been here today. Um, I also want to thank, give a special thanks to Elizabeth Smyth and also Carol Glagola who have both worked tirelessly, not only in the past couple of weeks, but throughout the year to make possible um, the events and the panels of today. They really deserve all the credit for all the work and um, the discussions that we're going to have. We cannot really talk about the rise in affective polarization and parochialism around the world without thinking about the agora. And the reason for that is because the agora laid a crucial foundation for democracy and making modern democracy possible. And so why was it so crucial? So to understand why it was so crucial, um, I want to draw on the work of a um, Stanford political theorist, Josiah Ober, who talks about that answering this question about why the agora was so crucial to democracy depends first on understanding what democracy is. So often nowadays, people have begun to think about democracy as majority rule. Right, it's a voting rule that helps us decide what we want to do together. And he argues that democracy actually wasn't just about voting rule and its a voting rule and its original conceptions. Right? Instead, if you go—I mean, those of you who speak Greek don't need me to tell you that you know democracy is really the composite of two words, demos kratia, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Right? But when put together, it means people power. And power, in that original sense, was about the capacity of people to act. Right. So when we think about democracy in its original formulation, it was about sort of the capacity of people to act together. And that's why the Agora was so important, because the Agora was a place where people came together to develop the capacities to learn to act together in the ways that they needed to make democracy work. I think the question that the Agora really poses for us is, What choices can we make now in the 21st century to realize democracy's promise, right? What are the choices that we can make about how we want to design the spaces, the Agora-like spaces and the institutions that we have to make possible the democracy that we want? And so that question or form of that question has really been in um, the backdrop of my work for many years. So my work has always been dedicated to trying to understand um, how we make the participation of ordinary people possible, probable, and powerful. So I've always wanted to understand how is it that we pull people off the sidelines of public life? Right? How is it that we cultivate their interests, their motivations, their desires to want to engage with each other? And then finally, um, how do we make that matter? Right, democracy is not just about people taking action, but it's about people taking action in a way that actually allows them to have voice over the outcomes that they care about. And the panels that we have before us today um, are really just the beginning of the kind of conversations that we hope to be exploring and scrutinizing and probing through the work of the Agora Institute. So we have three great panels, um, and I am delighted to have the opportunity to invite the first panel um, to the stage today. So Rolf Meyer is the former Minister of Constitution Affairs in South Africa. He's joined by Ibrahim Rasul, who's a former South African Ambassador to the United States, and Tim Phillips, who's the founder of Beyond Conflict. And like many of the other panels that we've had today, um, we're gonna start just by having a discussion between us. But then after that discussion, we're gonna open up the conversation to Q&A with all of you. So I invite you to use the um, same app that you've been using throughout the conference to sort of send questions. And we really hope to have a really vibrant conversation about um, the work that these gentlemen have been doing um, that I think is really instructive about the kinds of things that we hope to be querying in the Institute.
3: The three things that South Africa's story, I think, conveyed to other situations wherever it is, even including in the US, is the one of inclusivity. We followed the totally inclusive approach in terms of who sit around the table, who participate in the dialogue, and who participate in the negotiations. And it was Mandela who led us on that. He said, bring them all to the table, even parties, small parties that had no proof of existence, really people who were against him. He invited right-wingers from the white side. He invited them to come to the table. And so it was a very inclusive approach that we followed, not only in terms of parties, but also persuasions. And I think that's important. The second point is that we, that we succeeded in building trust across the divides. Uh, I was the team leader of the negotiations on the former white government side. Cyril Ramaphosa, who is now our president of South Africa, was the team leader of the ANC on the other side. We worked together for six years, eye to eye, without interruption. And through that, we built a level of trust that never will go away. There was a chemistry between us that said one thing, and that is there's no problem that we can't resolve. That was very powerful in terms of the outcome of what we achieved. We did not necessarily always agree. Of course. We started off as enemies at the beginning, but we succeeded through this process in building trust to the level where nothing could stop us from realizing a peaceful transition. And while a Mandela and a de Klerk emerged
4: at particular moments, good leaders must fall on fertile soil. If you have not disabled the gene of populism in the population, a popular, credible, wise leader will not find fertile soil. So in the ANC, we grew up with the slogan that says, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. We questioned why the white part, because they were the enemy. And then it clicked with us that unlike in Mozambique, Angola, in Congo, etc., where the colonialists had a homeland to go back to, our colonialists, the white community of South Africa, had nowhere else to go. They were there forever. And we had better come to terms with that reality. And that's why we called our struggle colonialism of a special type. Because our colonialists, their home was South Africa. And the problem today is that we all believe that the other can go away. The other is ejectable. Mm -hmm. The other does not belong. And the moment you make that shift, immigration policy becomes integration policy.
5: Uh what's really interesting in the experience of south africa is a country that structurally was about us versus them and there are many thems and one us for a long time in south africa what i see happening in the united states and other countries and in europe is we're going from this notion of you and i to us versus them so we're we're moving in the wrong direction and you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the work we're doing in the United States, and one of the things when what we're finding is working with brain and behavioral scientists uh, at different universities uh, and within our own organization is that not only are Americans aggregating a lot of historic fault lines and democratic and republican identities, that we're going from an uh, you and I mindset to an us versus them mindset, and it's deepening. And one thing we know from, again, science, is that when you go to an us-versus-them mindset, a whole set of unconscious psycholo- psychological processes really start to come online and get accelerated. And we're in a hyper-polarized environment in the United States. So that adds to what is a toxic mix of polarization, which, like conflict, is inherent in democracy and in every relationship. But when it becomes toxic, it's like a disease that may have been you know, initiated from an external trigger, but it gets to a point where that then takes over your body. And we're at a state in the United States where this sort of toxic polarization, this us versus them, it's really becoming sectarian in the United States to the point that not only do we really need to, and like in a public health way, unpack this, find out what are the realities of where we're really divided, but how do we begin to learn from South Africa and others? Not these historic, this is how you negotiate, but what... Ibrahim was saying, how do you encounter the human in another?
1: We're excited to continue our discussions today, reflecting on how we can learn how to talk across divides. So I'm really pleased now to welcome our next participants to talk about building coalitions. And they'll be looking at this issue through both the lens of history and, as previously, uh, experience. So please welcome Martha Jones, the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of American History at Johns Hopkins University, and Mark Morial, President and CEO of the National Urban League and former mayor of New Orleans, Louisiana.
6: Thanks very much, Elizabeth, Um, and good afternoon. Uh, We are just a few minutes here um, from noon in Athens, and um, I want to join, I think, the chorus of thank yous um, to... Um, the foundation, uh, to Johns Hopkins, um, and particularly to you, Mr. Mayor, uh, for being here thank you, with Professor. Us. Really thrilled um, to have you.
7: Great to be here. Good. I'm, I'm in, uh, let me, yeah, first of all, just thank you. I want to thank Johns Hopkins and uh, everyone here for having me and for uh, for the chance to be part of a powerful dialogue. So it's just about that. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My view of uh, the world and, 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 and my leadership is shaped uh, by that neighborhood and shaped by the experiences of that neighborhood. So that neighborhood, called punch train Park, was an all-black neighborhood in New Orleans. It was built in the 1950s. The intent, uh, when the city fathers built the neighborhood, the intent was to maintain racial segregation. So they created a neighborhood where African-Americans for the first time could own homes. But interestingly, it was next to a white neighborhood of virtually the same size and the same economic character. These were middle, middle middle lower-to-middle-to-middle-class neighborhoods. Uh, And uh, very early on, the first year I went to school, the schools were integrated, but the school was in the white neighborhood. So we had to traverse from the black neighborhood into the white neighborhood, to go to an integrated school. When I got to middle school, uh, I left the neighborhood to go to an all-white uh, middle school, first African-American student to attend that school. So many, in many instances, when I was growing up, I had to live a dual existence. I had to live in the all-black neighborhood, and I had to go to the all-white school. I had a set of friends at school, I had a set of friends in the neighborhood, the friends in the neighborhood didn't know the friends at school, the friends in the school didn't know the friends in the neighborhood, and so be it, and had to navigate. And you learn interesting things about people uh, when you grow up in that kind of existence. You learn about differences, and you learn about similarities. You learn about hopes, fears, aspirations, stereotypes, and the like. So it shaped a lot of uh, how I've thought about Uh, trying to lead uh, in all instances where I had an opportunity to to lead. You really
6: anticipate um, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper Mm -hmm. um, who at the one hand wants to tell us we're all sort of part of one humanity um, but she also wants to talk about what it means to come out of a slave society, what it means to come out of a city like Baltimore, what it means to be a black woman in Mm -hmm. this historical moment. And I think sometimes we find it difficult to speak those two narratives at the same time. In other words, how do we bring our particularity, our starting point? So it is true, I told you two things about me when we met. Um, One is that I was born in central Harlem. That's Mm -hmm. an important piece for me to put on the table. Um, And two, um, it turns out that um, my father's most beloved cousin, Uh, Bill Jones lived just around the corner from you. Right. Um, And these are very particular um, moments, places. um, And so how do you navigate that? In other words, we're trying to be part of one conversation, but there is a way in which we begin or we enter those conversations through um, very specific times and places that say something about who,
7: what we bring to the discussion. It may be a little simplistic, some people may think it's pedestrian. I fundamentally believe that uh, one of the most important things we can do is to create environments where young people have an opportunity to build cross-racial, cross-cultural, and cross-national friendships. Uh, I think that if we do not instill a sensibility in young people, and I'm talking about people at the teenage years, at the college years, in the young professional ranks, a sensibility and an understanding to get to know people beyond stereotypes, beyond perceptions, beyond predispositions, beyond learning, then it is so much more difficult later on to do.
6: But I want to ask about young you because Mm -hmm. yesterday you told me something um, that I didn't expect, Mm -hmm. which is that when you were a... A young person and your father began to take you on the stump Mm -hmm. to the ward to the precincts um, to the meetings Um, you were bored and you would rather be with your friends Um,
7: i I I think like any kid you know my father was uh you know a civil rights leader my mother uh, was an activist my father became was a lawyer he he also served uh, as mayor of new orleans uh, before i did uh, and when we were young, we would I would go places with him, not because he was trying to help me learn, but because there was nowhere else for me to be but to go hang out with him. So at ages five, six, seven, eight, nine, I'd go to these community meetings, I'd go to these places, and it'd be absolutely boring because I couldn't, un- you know, you're too young to really understand the conversation. When I got to be about 10, 11, and 12, uh, he got elected uh, when I was 10 to the legislature, and I would go to the legislature uh, and spend a week or two with him in the legislature. And I was old enough that it started to click and make sense in terms of what was really going on. Uh, and I remember being a boy uh, in the legislature when... They debated such things as sex education in schools. This is 1969, 1970 in the Louisiana legislature. Uh, I remember my father had a bill uh, that uh, delabeled blood. Louisiana had a law at that point in time where blood had to be labeled as black O positive, white O positive, and it was illegal to give a transfusion to a black person with white blood, quote-unquote, or a black person uh, with white blood. Uh, and uh, he had a, a bill to delabel it, uh, and it turned into a really nas- national story because one of the members of the legislature jumped up uh, in the debate and started using the, the most of worse and awful profanity right against the bill. So things began to click at that age, and so that exposure, uh, which, uh, you know, and so I think kids sometimes, when you're exposed, they're gonna either love it are they going to resent it, or they're going to love it, or they're going to hate it, particularly if their parents are compelling it, right? Uh, but for me, I, 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 I wouldn't trade even those days of going to those NAACP meetings, those political meetings, even when I was bored for anything in the world, because finally you get older and it begins to click. And so the point really is, uh, you know, to everyone, we have to expose to the best of our ability our young people. Uh, to things that adults do. For example, this is a powerful dialogue in here. Uh, I think uh, this sort of dialogue, I think, including students, college students, high school students, giving them an opportunity to sense what happens, what goes on when people have a conversation about serious issues and serious matters. I think cross-national and cross-cultural dialogues, I don't think we can do enough of that. Uh, Because I think in the long run, it will pay off.
6: You know, I spent 16 years um, from 2001 to 2017 living in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And what I tell my friends back east is it was the best political education I could have ever had.
7: Right. Because Detroit. And then there's Michigan. <laughs> Thank you,
6: and um, and there we were, right at the yeah. center of yes. so many of the issues that vexed the country. Yeah. Um, the decline of
7: manufacturing, the uh, uh, the infrastructure challenges of cities, uh, the
6: largest community of people from the Middle East yes, in the world, right, in Dearborn, right outside, of like the yeah. East, outside of the Middle East itself. Um, it was an extraordinary political education that I never could have had had I
7: stayed in New York. Well, that's, you know, the, the, the United States is a extremely pluralistic, multicultural, and, and I like to use the term multicultural, and, and I think, in, you know, uh, Mandela and his words, you know, uh, continue to be an inspiration to so many of us, uh, but uh, what we are trying to do in the United States, the way I look at it at least, is we're trying to build a 21st century multicultural democracy. Multi religious, multicultural democracy. It is not easy to do uh, because we, as, uh, as uh, the earlier panel said, we never reconciled in the correct way uh, the issues of slavery and then what I call slavery light, which was a system of American apartheid or segregation. We never completely reconciled it, right? And because we never completely reconciled it, we're trying now when the demographics of the country are no longer just dominantly black and white, but now a growing Latino, uh, Asian, and other communities that are growing uh, in size uh, at a greater rate than either the white or the black population. So it becomes a mixture, it becomes a gumbo, it becomes a mosaic, uh, and within all of that, You're trying to build a country where people feel they have a seat at the table, a say in what goes on, an opportunity for meaningful prosperity. Uh, And that's the goal and that's the challenge for 21st century America. You know, America is an amalgamation of almost, uh, you know, not only 50 states, but multiple diasporas and multiple communities. But it's on top of this foundation. A several hundred year legacy of slavery and segregation.
1: Thank you all so much. Um, And now, please welcome our final discussion of the day, uh, offering perspectives on an issue being debated around the world right now, and this is the issue of refugee integration. Moderating our discussion will be Michelle Miller, who is the co host of CBS This Morning Saturday, and she will be joined by Munzer Khattab. born in Syria, now living in Germany, and the co-founder of Bureau Crazy, an app to help uh, immigrants around the world integrate into their new communities. Nick and Chuck, who is a neuroscientist and researcher who has spent a career um, understanding uh, the plight of refugees and the communities into which they integrate. And Barry Shorey, who is the Senior Technical Director of Economic Recovery and Development at the International Rescue Committee. Uh, Barry has also spent a career around the world understanding these issues.
8: We're here to talk about something that I think everyone from every nation understands or should. 70.8 million number of displaced people, poverty, war, famine, and soon climate change impacts on these people moving, migrating, being ripped apart from their nations, their communities, and their people. There's an impact to them. There's an impact to the communities who choose to welcome them. There is an impact to those who choose to neglect them.
9: We are at a time in more displaced in the world since World War II. Um, Civil wars are three times as deadly as interstate wars, four times as long. Um, 60% of conflicts that started in the early 2000s have every five years sort of reignited. And I think, you know, refugees displaced they're not returning less than three percent last year and so i think it's just important to note you know what keeps me up at night is the fact that we need solutions we need thoughtful ideas Um, we need people like mike and munzer and the people that i work with worldwide um, really looking at you know as governments are retreating uh, the u.s and the uk certainly retreating uh, what does it mean to sort of uh, innovate to work uh, in this space and so you know what keeps me up at night is that it's not going away, uh, people are sort of retreating from, from responsibility and accountability, a- and what, how can we then uh, take that place?
10: No one really prepares you for what a war is gonna feel like. No one prepares you for what it's gonna be like to pick up that bag, shut the door, and never see that room again. You don't know when that memory of that room, the smell, the paint on the walls when that's going to attack you in the moments when you feel safe and it's going to not remind you of that sense of peace and comfort of home it's going to remind you of the loss that you don't have that forced displacement whether it's because of climate because of conflict because of uh, domestic violence whatever it might be forced displacement is embodied at the cellular level it affects the production of your DNA it's literally encoded on your DNA in a way that is passed down to subsequent generations that could in certain environments predispose your children to depression and to other mental health symptoms.
8: Did, did everyone hear that? I, I have to hear you. Did you, you got that, right? It has a physical, physical toll on our body.
10: You know, I spent most of the past seven years working between Jordan and, and Lebanon, especially in Zatari refugee camp on the border of Jordan and Syria. And one of the most challenging things, and this goes back to the question of what keeps me up at night, is that there's a There's a certain lie that I believed as well, that I, as an American citizen, as someone who can travel freely, as someone who, in the eyes of every refugee that I have befriended, oh, i got to befriend this guy, he can help me in some way. I can't. You know, I can in my context as a neuroscientist, as a researcher, of someone who works in mental health programming, but to think that me or Barry, as privileged Westerners, can change a damn thing about those systems, that requires a lot of coalition building that is far beyond one or two or three humanitarian agencies. So, you know, it's it's when people even are in these places of a refugee camp, or Greece, or Germany, or the United States, or Canada, and I'm thinking even to my native Guatemala, which had a massive displacement crisis in the 80s as well, you know, this stuff lingers. My mom left her country because of a conflict as well, and it affected the way that she raised me. It affected her traits of anxiety. And one of the hardest things is not knowing how to get out of that, knowing that war and displacement have changed you. I, have be, I, I am different than who I was before because of this, and I still don't know how to get out of it. So that cycle doesn't end just because someone finds a safe place, quote unquote. The effects linger for a long time, and that poses so many challenges to integration.
8: We need some social cohesion. We need some opportunities for dialogue. We need to change the dynamic. And I know we're saying, you know, Uphill battle. How do we begin the process or the continuum through what you all are doing here? Is it direct services? Is it understanding the mental and emotional
11: toll? Take me there. Well, in my opinion, I think the first thing that we need to do here is just to change the word integration into including. Just instead of... Saying that refugees have to integrate into the German or the whatever society they are in, they have to be included even in the decision making. I think nobody understands refugee more than a refugee himself and Mike because he's listening. And Mike. <laughs> he's not <laughs> the brain. Um, yeah. He's, he's um, the kind of guy, like, he has a conversation actually with refugees. He has friends, close friends. He, I'm, I'm close friends with Mike, and I think. People need to learn this. Need to learn how to talk with us, like because we are at the end, we're normal human being. We have our like our own life that you all have. We eat, drink, and then we have the same topics that we talk about. So have a normal conversation. That's really important. And including us even in the political this um, decision making. Because if you call it crisis, I don't see the crisis because in my opinion the crisis here is the other community is not accepting that there is new people coming oh my god they will change everything they will change our they will take our jobs and this is absolutely not correct because i think in germany at least after the refugee crisis if you want to call it there is more jobs than ever the
9: few things happening at, at sort of european and global levels around the sustainable development goals And and, uh, big meetings happening around this, but and we've made great strides within some of these SDGs. But what has been totally left behind is refugees and crisis-affected populations. And so, uh, doing a lot of work around advocacy around what does it mean to actually reach the Sustainable Development Goals for everyone. And then the other thing that's the other big sort of thing that's happening is the global refugee compacts. Um, so Jordan, Ethiopia, a few countries um, have been negotiated into these compacts around uh, refugee sort of uh, outputs and, and outcomes and looking at that. And so how can we really uh, uh, pressure sort of donor governments to be able to, to open up opportunities around these compacts as well? So those are just two policy bits.
10: And Michelle, to be optimistic, there, there are so many great small community level dialogue initiatives and programs in Greece, in Germany, in the United States, at the county and municipal level of, of communities that are yeah. receiving refugees, yeah. so it's, it's not all you know, yeah. blackness and darkness. It's, it, there's so many good small initiatives happening, and the truth is it's incredibly dangerous for you as a person to meet someone that you hate or have said that you have hated. So you see tremendous transformations in people when they're actually forced to be in that intimate space with someone that they profess hating. I've seen this happen with people that have been in Jabhat al-Nusra and Daesh. I've seen this happen with, um, you know, uh, right-wing um, you know, extremists in the United States. So there's transformations that are happening.
8: Um, where do we go from here? We're having this conversation. You have a, an audience here who are engaged, or at least moved, um, who want to be outraged? Some of them who want to be angry because um, they see a, they see a way. What do they do? I think,
11: like first of all, have a conversation with someone. Um, like just try to go out and talk with, like one of us, if you want to call it. Like I hate, I hate that kind of division between those communities. What trying actually to create here is. What's happened, like, uh, you're, uh, Mark was talking about uh, the division between uh, black community and white community in the U.S. We don't want this anymore. We need to stop it. So we need to be included. We need to be stop hating each other, just like have a normal conversation with normal human beings. We're not Easier
8: said than done. Yeah.
11: <laughs> we're not scary, I swear. <laughs> I,
10: I would just say, I made so many assumptions about what I think refugees should want. When, they're, when they arrived in Jordan, when they arrived in the camp that I was working in, when they arrived in the United States. Ask Munzer what he wants and fight to help him get it. End of discussion for that.
9: I mean, I would just add, too, I think, you know, there's around the personal and really understanding the refugee experience and, and talking to refugees, I think also putting pressure on your governments, putting pressure on even your companies to sort of be more inclusive hiring practices and, and even sort of just saying what does it mean to have a diverse workforce, what does it mean to be a diverse city, and how do you push for that, and then, you know, vote, vote uh, for, for, the, for the people and policies and practices that um, matter and that open up the space, but yeah.
0: like to thank all of you for being here with us today and just to remind you that next dialogues event the upcoming dialogues event will travel to Vaku on july the 13th On the occasion of the Van Vaku Revival Project, we will open up the discussion about the revitalization of rural places driven by technology, innovation, extroversion and respect of course for its place and its traditions. In addition to the discussion that will take place as part of the dialogue series, visitors will also participate in a number of outdoors activities and a mountain run and we also attend a Greek national opera concert. Thank you.